You must stay at home. Stay at home. Hello and welcome to Lockdown, hosted by Steve Bonford with Mike Davis-Marks. Our armed forces operate in challenging environments. Week by week, we'll explore what we can learn from their experiences. Hello, Steve. Um, I understand you've got a, an old friend of mine uh, for your next podcast episode. That's it. I'm running Mike's Friends Reunited for you. How is that? Am I doing a good job? Moderately so. I mean, you've got a long way to go, to be honest. Anyway, um, it's David Noyes, isn't it? Yes, it is. I'm slowly working my way through your friends list. He is Chief Executive of Solent NHS Trust. Yeah, I have a lot of friends in good places. Always good to see them do well. Indeed it is. So let's have a little listen to see what he's got to say. David, thank you very much for agreeing to come on the podcast. It's a great pleasure. Nice to see you. And you. So I've got a few questions for you. So let's get started. So if you could just tell me a little bit about your your experience in the Royal Navy, please. Yeah, sure. Um, so I, uh, I I joined the Navy in uh, 1985 as a young 18-year-old. Um, I was quite heavily influenced by, you know, my father was in a, a fighter pilot in the Fleet Air One back in the 50s and 60s, which I think had a, you know, a big influence all over me um, and uh, and events of the time. You know, is the sort of middle, middle, early, early mid '80s. So the Falklands War was very um, fresh in everybody's mind, and um, I think those probably those two things came together and made me think that looks like a really interesting uh, and fulfilling place to be uh, and a good career. So um, I went through went through the whole process and uh, went down to Dartmouth as a cadet, at age of uh, age of 18. Spent a few months running around Dartmoor and up and down big hills and being shouted at by parade instructors and what have you, like everybody else. Um, and uh, became a midshipman and then out to out to fleet training um, and then a bit of professional training before starting my career as a as a logistics officer. Um, and spent um, the next 28 years doing uh, doing a variety of different uh, a variety of different things and different challenges as service life throws at you clearly quite a lot of sea time, uh, particularly in my earlier career. Um, away at sea in um, mostly in Type 22 frigates, uh, but also did an appointment in uh, HMS Illustrious, um, and then um, a series of other appointments, either you know ashore in Fleet HQ or um, a couple of times working up in Whitehall in the Ministry of Defence, um, and uh, and you know um, also a really good job as uh, logistics commander in uh, in Portsmouth Dockyard, um, which was uh, which was great. Um, I, Finished off towards the end of my time. I was lucky enough to be promoted to captain, um, and um, my penultimate job was a bit unusual. I was seconded from the navy across to the army to 101 Brigade, uh, based out of Aldershot. Um, spent about 18 months uh, working with the army as deputy commander of 101 Brigade with a uh, a Remi Royal Electrical Mechanical Engineers Brigadier as my boss, uh, and that time with them encompassed a, a tour of Afghan. Uh, Afghanistan during Herrick 15-16 back in 2011-2012, supporting uh, supporting operations out there. So quite a different, uh, quite a varied uh, time, really. I sort of think, you know, my time was kind of bookended a bit. My my first proper um, proper sea experience in '87 was uh, during during fleet time, fleet training um, was in the, in HMS Brazen, and we were out in the Persian Gulf at the sort of height of the Iran-Iraq war, which was uh, escorting British flag tankers up through the Straits of Hormuz at action stations. 
um, across the missile fields and um, and through the minefields and what have you, with minesweepers supporting up by Bahrain, um, and then sort of right back end of my time um, out in Afghanistan. But a lot of different things in between, uh, a lot of fun and a lot of different experiences. Crikey! And all that in six months? No. <laughs> so how long did how long did all that take? So you're in for a little while, weren't years, you? Yeah. Twenty. I started with a full head of hair on my own teeth, and look at me now. <laughs> Couldn't possibly comment. Couldn't possibly comment. So what inspired you, given all that background, to join the NHS? Because that sounds like something very different to me. Yeah, I mean, different, but, uh, you know, more similarities than you might um, than you might think uh, or might imagine, I think, Steve. The, you know, I had a great I had a great 28 years, really. And if, you know, if I was 18, um, I'd do it all again in a heartbeat. But, you know, you, you come to a point in time with life when um, you know you, you make a change, I decided um, back in sort of 2013 that uh, I probably um, was was looking to try and take on something new, a, di- a different sort of set of challenges. Um, and I've always had been attracted to a um, you know a second career in the health service at some at some point. Um, I suppose because you know I have that I have that sort of uh, slightly unfashionable but public service altruism um, coursing through me, and I like to like to think that you know what I'm doing is. Uh, making a difference to people uh, and making people's lives better. Um, and there's, a, there's, there's actually a significant um, sort of crossover of skills between um, you know, a lot of what military people do uh, and certainly what I was lucky enough to do and, and you know, do during my time in the service that actually are applicable in um, within the health service. So um, that and the culture really of, um, of, that, of that willingness to sort of serve, if you like, um, but also, you know, but to be, um, you know, but to put the best into it in order to make things better uh, and drive success are, are really, you know, really good transferable bits of culture. And the skill sets of, um, I mean, I'm, you know, fortunate to find myself in a job as chief operating officer where I, you know, run large teams of guys across uh, across the whole of Hampshire. Our footprint is predominantly across the south the south belt of Hampshire in the two big cities, Southampton, Portsmouth. Increasingly. Uh, delivering services on on the Isle of Wight, but we do have some significant services across the entirety of Hampshire, um, and, and a regional lead for a, a, a veterans mental health service, which we'll talk about later, I'm sure. Um, but but you know, driving big teams of people, um, helping set objectives and um, and generating operational success, managing budgets, managing people, managing targets to to hit and what have you is a, is is a, is all stuff which you know once I, I was familiar with from my time in the in the service really i think it's it's quite interesting or quite striking isn't it how many people who have been in the armed forces who go on to work and support and serve again if you like serve communities again or you know work in the voluntary sector or the charitable sector it's quite interesting isn't it yeah i think it is i mean uh, the chief executive of Southland, uh, sue harriman is an ex uh, ex naval nurse um, we've got a we've got a good smattering of um, of veterans across our across our organization but i i agree i think you you see um, a lot of uh, a lot of ex-service people going into that that sort of uh, that's sort of, these sort of areas that you describe absolutely. Interesting. So uh, we were talking before we started this call. Um, you asked me about a meeting that I'd been to for the first time, and 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 just talking about the NHS more broadly. And one of the things I said was that I, even though I've kind of dealt with the NHS all my life, I've not been in you know the service and had that kind of support that you get looking after your health when you're in the military. That navigating and and sort of understanding what the NHS does is can sometimes be very, very complicated. Um, and that kind of leads me to my next question. What does Solent NHS Trust actually do? Yeah, sure. 
Um, so we are um, we are a trust which delivers community services and mental health services um, across that patch, which uh, which I described. But we are we, as part of that, we deliver some some quite specialist services, um, you know, under that uh, under that umbrella. But you know, predominantly we are uh, an organisation which delivers um, health outcomes in a in in the community setting, which is a little bit jargonistic, isn't it? But so we run teams of community nurses uh, and community therapists, people that will come and uh, visit people in their own homes uh, or, or in their care homes or their, you know, wherever they are they are living, and deliver health care that you know at, at or close to people's homes. So therapeutic interventions or, or you know medical interventions or you know nursing, you know, whether it's um, helping people who have dexterity problems with insulin injections or helping people on, um, if, you know, sadly, uh, obviously reality with uh, end of life, with administration of, uh, of pain relief through to wound, you know, wound care, um, help people with ulcerating, ulcerating wounds uh, and what have you, as well as um, helping people with a rehabilitation journey, work that we do often in very close partnership, almost always very close partnership with our colleagues in the councils, in, in both the big cities, um, help people with um, physiotherapy, um, getting getting the mobility back after an injury or a, a surgical operation. Uh, we have occupational therapists that help people to adapt to their new circumstances that they find themselves in. Speech and language therapists and, and people who help people get back on the back on their feet. We also deliver a whole range of um, of interventions and and assistance for children and families. So, um, particularly, um, you know, children's medical interventions. So we have children's community nurses that do similar work in the community with uh, with children. Very, some very complicated interventions that we can do um, in people's homes. For example, certain types of chemotherapy for children who who try to, might sadly have um, cancer. Um, but we also have, um, you know. Child, in, child intervention in the mental health sphere. So children and young adults, children and adolescent mental health services uh, we deliver and children's therapies, children's physiotherapy and, uh, and speech and language therapy uh, as well across the piece. We do specialist um, physiotherapy work. We do podiatry work um, in, in both cities and across the belt of, uh, belt of South Hampshire. Sexual health services across the whole of Hampshire. Um, Specialist dental, which is a service for people who have difficulty or are unable to access, you know, normal high street dentistry. So commonly, uh, people with learning disabilities or severe phobia or mental health issues. Uh, people with dementia, we we can do that either in clinic or in a domestic visiting uh, visiting service. Uh, and in the city of Portsmouth, we deliver mental health services. So um, specialist acute mental health services for adults and older people. So it's a big range of uh, of, of service offer across uh, across the piece, really. I think you're doing well to remember all that, let alone deliver it all. <laughs> I've, I've probably missed a few, Steve, to be honest. You know, it's, uh... <laughs> so that must be quite a big organisation and must come with its own challenges, many challenges, I would have thought. But obviously, we're here to talk about uh, the military side of things and veterans. And I would like to talk a bit about Operation Courage, which has been a new um, banner organisation, if I got that right, in terms of Johnny Mercer making that announcement from the Office of Veterans Affairs. And more specifically, what's going on in, in the Portsmouth area and the surrounding area of Portsmouth in relation to veterans' mental health? What, what are you doing in that space? Yeah, thanks. So we've got... Um 
I mean, we we approach our work with uh, with veterans and the veterans community really in three in three different sort of um, buckets, if you like. Um, not a very elegant way of describing, it, is it? But but in three spheres, um, we we as a trust within our own trust um, do our do our best to um, you know help people who are uh, who are either in transition from the service. Um, leaving, leaving, uh, already working with the trust. We have a, a veterans network uh, and a series of um, events to keep um, to keep the sort of veteran flame alive. Talk to veterans, um, coach people on their on their journey. Look for look for opportunities for us because it, you know it's a it's a good place for veterans to be. Um, uh, and so we we uh, have a series of trust wide interventions or for our own veteran community, if you like. Uh, and then we are very very proud to be. A, heavily involved with a, a whole host of partner organizations in the Portsmouth um, arena, as you as alluded to, and we're growing that alliance across the entirety of Hampshire Isle of Wight, but it started definitely in Portsmouth uh, with a, a thing called the Portsmouth Military Mental Health Alliance. Uh, and that's a, a sort of umbrella organization there where we try and bring, try and succeed uh, in bringing uh, all sorts of different people who have a stake in the um, and an interest in in veterans affairs, particularly obviously veterans mental health, bring them together into a uh, a common forum that's uh, that's about sharing um, sharing experience, sharing expertise, um, sharing a bit of knowledge, and and helping to try and pull together um, uh, in the in the possible space, including obviously a heavily military uh, area of navy and uh, and indeed army, um, you know, together to try and make um, make service delivery a little bit more coherent, a little bit easier to access, uh, and 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 find out a little bit more about each other, so that we can uh, we can help each other to make the service delivery um, you know uh, a lot better. And we've got as a trust, as an organisation, we you know we've got some arrangements with um, you know, big stakeholders like the Royal Navy, Royal Marines charity, uh, and we deliver some interventions for them. Um, and indeed for, for Navy Command in terms of helping people, um, both veterans and serving, with uh, with issues like um, addiction, uh, gambling and, uh, and alcohol addiction uh, and the like. But the, the Military Mental Health Alliance itself is is all, to, is all to do with trying to, you know, be a bit, a bit more coherent in the space. It's quite, uh, you know, for very good reasons and, and for all very, you know, well-intentioned reasons. I think the the space for veterans, particularly if they're starting to, you know, starting to feel, starting to suffer with, with you know, with mental health issues or starting to tip into crisis, it can be quite a complex area because there's lots of different organisations which, for really good reasons, have evolved and developed on their own and, and do little, you know, different, do different niche areas of, of service intervention, but that can inadvertently make the pathways to where people getting the right help that they need, you know, a little bit complicated. So the Alliance is a way of seeking to, you know, share that share that experience across the provision side of life um, so that we can uh, we can try and make it better for, for people. And we're doing some work, um, you know, to collaborate across that piece in terms of um, trying to, you know, coming up with um, common approaches for things like the Recovery College, uh, and working with our, uh, you know, our, our partners ac uh, across the piece um, for, you know, rapid intervention um, for people um, and, and a sort of escalating scale as pe if people need, you know, the, the ideal is to try and, you know, get to people as quickly as possible if they're starting to suffer. 
uh, and help them to you know rationalize and help them to to work through their issues at the at the lowest possible level prevent them tipping into a crisis and you know work also obviously with their families partners children um, and and what have you so it's a real um, it's a real joy to be part of that uh, part of that and that sort of leads on to the to the the third area which um, which is this thing badged now um, nationally as op courage um, which is the, the the veterans mental health high intensity service where we um, we deliver the service ourselves for Hampshire Isle of Wight um, but our, we, we're lucky enough to be the lead for the whole southeast region so we work with uh, our partners from East and West Sussex, Kent, uh, Berkshire, Oxfordshire and the like uh, and Surrey um, with a with a model of service delivery which sits beneath the traditional um, more high intensity veterans mental health provision um, from from the NHS your TILS and CTS um, type services but it's called the high intensity service and it's a a, a, a thing that we deliver closely in partnership with um, two organisations uh, walking the wounded and all call signs who are both um, uh, in a voluntary sector. Walking Wounded, a charity, all call signs, a voluntary sector organisation. Um, we're very much in, you know, with, crewed by, manned by, and delivered by uh, by veterans. Um, and that the model, the service model for that is uh, a team of our own clinical uh, clinical guys, uh, clinical psychologists, particularly it's a psychological based uh, intervention, but working with all call signs and uh, and walking the wounded, who provide a great deal of um, of peer support. Um, from their from their guys, peer support and, and um, sort of social care type support, and the strength of it is that um, those those voluntary sector workers, the all call signs and walking wounded guys, are veterans, so they do have lived experience, and therefore we we find the, the real success of the of the model is that is that veterans find it a lot easier on the whole to open up and talk to and relate to people who have the shared experience the lived experience they've taken a walk in the same boots um and so that we we are finding it that that um that actually it is an incredibly effective way of uh, of helping people to really um really understand and then we can help them um Either, either deal with them within the service ourselves or we can help via things like the mental health alliances which we're trying to now replicate across that entire southeast region as you'd imagine um, to signpost to the right service to help people get the help that they need which includes uh, you know occasionally referral to our own clinical psychological teams uh, and in you know if necessary if if people require it then escalation up to the traditional tills and cts so it's a um it's a it's proving to be a real joy to be part of um, we're managing to help uh, since the official launch. We we launched in Hampshire before Christmas, but the national launch for the thing was, as you say, a few weeks back with uh, with Johnny Mercer launching Up Courage. And we're finding that as uh, as the message grows, we're getting um, you know quite a lot of referrals in, which is um, which is great because we're able to reach out and help a lot of people. Wow, there's a lot going on. That sounds really positive. So in terms of referrals, is this, is this- to access any of these services, have you got to be referred by a GP? How, I'm just thinking about for our listeners' point of view, if you might mm. be uh, in need or thinking about getting some support. How do they go about that? What's what's the process? Well, the um, the way you know, I mean, that is a way to to get into the service. But actually, you know, we've got to link up with uh, with one one one. Uh, the 111 provision so if you know people can call 111 identify themselves as a veteran identify what their issue is and, and they'll get referred into the service that way that's in place in in hampshire isle of wight 
um, and we're hoping that that will be picked up across the, the, our regional model. Um, and there's potential for that eventually to become a national uh, thing. But at the moment in Hampshire, Isle of Wight, so 111 is the, is the best referral point into that. So basically anybody that's feeling, you know, a bit out of sorts, that's, that's, that's the option is to call 111. Yeah, or you can go via your own your own primary care, of course, and and or or indeed if anybody who's in touch with any of those uh, any of those organisations as part of the Ministry of Health Alliance, um, which could be you know uh, VOS, the Veterans Outreach Service in uh, in Portsmouth, or uh, or Walking the Wounded, or of course any of those guys who are you know, Ripple Pond, the Hive, you know all of those people who are involved, we, they all know how to how to refer. So Solent Mind, the Solent Recovery College. We've, all of those people have the have the ability to refer in, so um, we, we've got quite a quite a wide net cast out there. Sounds good. A lot of those organisations you've just mentioned would normally be operating face to face, wouldn't they? I know all call signs have a have a unit down on Albert Road. Voss obviously is a monthly drop in, and we can't do that at the moment, pretty much. Although things are hopefully relaxing over the coming months. Have you seen? Any challenges or changes? How about um, accessing services digitally or has there been a sort of change in need because of the last 12 months? Has that had an impact upon people? Um, I mean, I think I think it's definitely, I mean, obviously the whole, you know, this last 12 months has been an extraordinary challenge for the for the entire country, hasn't it? But, you know, the, we've, we've managed to we've managed to find new and innovative ways of, uh, of reaching people, you know, digitally, primarily, of course. Um, which is off, which is often a, a, I say often, not always, but often a very good way of maintaining service and, and maintaining contact. I think it has, you know, it has limitations naturally, and I think some people are, you know, naturally a bit more reluctant to use it. And and we have this is a wider issue that we rest within in in healthcare, not just in the sort of veterans' mental health space, but um, you know, this issue of digital poverty. You know, it, it would be a mistake, I think, to go. Um, full square into a 100% digital, you know, remote consultation type solution because not everybody, not everybody has either the the, the means or to have a, you know, smartphone or a laptop or a tablet or what have you, or um, or necessarily the technical, you know, skills mm-hmm. uh, in truth to do it. So it's um, so I think it's I think these you know some of the digital solutions we've been playing with and we've rolled out some really successful things in the past in the past year which will which will keep but i don't think it's the answer to everything i think you always have to have a, a provision that accepts and accommodates the fact that you know that's not an answer that everybody will find that that useful and fundamentally um fundamentally the delivery of certainly physical health care requires you know caring nursing staff therapy staff medical staff to lay hands on people you know and there's no getting away from that you can do an awful lot remotely uh, you can do an awful lot using zoom or, or teams and what have you but I think um, you know I, my own personal view is that the the delivery of um, of healthcare is is fundamentally a human to human contact sort of business. So that that will never change. Do you think there'll be a hybrid model going forward? Yeah, I do. Uh, I do. I think there's you know as I say that there's a lot of learning um, you know from the from the COVID crisis, um, and I think you know it, in some ways you know none of us would have voted for this, would be because it's it's been awful and people have lost their lives, but. Uh, it has helped to accelerate some of these some of these solutions uh, and some of these innovations which are which are good um but i think we have to keep testing ourselves keep challenging ourselves about <clears throat> excuse me that that accessibility um you know it's a real big issue for us you know, anywhere anywhere in healthcare 
about um, about the accessibility of our services and make sure that we are um, fully available and reach into every part of our society. Um, and sometimes that that isn't as you know the, the our, our ability to reach in isn't isn't quite as good as it should be. So I think it is uh, an area that will, will be a hybrid into the future, but not in not in every not in every regard. So I think you'll see a mixed economy moving forward, no doubt. You know some some improvement, but as I say, I think we need to be um, ambitious and innovative, but careful that we don't leave people behind. Because yeah. probably the people that we would leave behind if we did would be those more hard to reach. You know, it's a bit of a bit of a um, you know, overused term, but but the areas of uh, of privation that we really want to reach into are likely the the areas where people do struggle to access tech. Um, so we have to be you know cautious about that. Mm. I must admit, we've been very because we as we talked about before before this uh, um, interview, this chat. Um, the company makers, we just had to pour everything online because obviously face-to-face was impossible. And we've been genuinely surprised about those that have really enjoyed the online experience who, you know, on paper, you might have thought, I'm not sure they would like that. And yet others just haven't taken to it at all and sort of done one session and thought, no, I'd rather come down and do something at the fort or whatever it may be. It's not, Mm. you can't easily judge a person's reaction to it. That's what I find quite interesting about digital and face-to-face. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I think, and I think we've seen the same. Um, it, it can, as I said, it can be a, it can be a really effective tool, but I don't think it's a, you know, it's not a, it's not the answer to a maiden's prayer. It doesn't doesn't hit everybody. Um, you know, it doesn't doesn't get everywhere. No. So sorry, I did. I asked a terrible multiple question before we did this. The other part I wanted to ask to, to come back to was, um, how do you think COVID has affected all of uh, people's mental health and well-being generally and specifically within? sort of within the veteran space or has it not made any difference what 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 are your thoughts on that um i think it i think it is a cause of of concern for us moving forward um i think the the impact of the implications and the impact of um extended periods in lockdown um and the restrictions on social contact at the end of the day to avoid spreading the virus have had and will have uh, long-term, long, re- you know, far-reaching implications for mental health across the community. Actually, um, veterans, you know, not no exception to that. Um, and I think, you know, we're already starting to see um, some evidence of that with with you know growth of uh, growth of referrals. I think it's too early to say. I think there's a you know it's the Rumsfeldian unknown unknowns out out there. But I think there's a there's there's a real real potential for. Um, uh, you know, long-term, long-term, and far-reaching implications of that in the mental health, in the mental health space, and it'll take some time to to work all that through. I think, you know, from my own, you know, as our own trust, our own provision, like like so, we're, you know, elsewhere across the entire health service, and you've seen this all over the media a lot over the last um, twelve months with people working incredibly hard, um, and and you know, in, whether it's in intensive care units or or what have you, you know, we have. Um, within Solent, our, our staff have been absolutely fantastic. Um, but we've asked them to do some extraordinary things and we've we've changed what they do, um, redeployed them, um, to use a military term, taken them off of their often often their what their what their original purpose was, asked them to do, you know, COVID facing tasks. We generated 
um, significant numbers of additional um, community ward bed space. So, you know, one of the areas of service, um, as I said, in, in district nursing and community nursing is people who come to their own homes, but we also have uh, wards of beds for people on a rehabilitation journey. We, we generated, uh, you know, significant numbers of additional beds and uh, asked people who would often be doing other work, um, particularly in, in physiotherapy and what have you, to redeploy and, uh, and, and staff those beds up. People out of sexual health and what have you, core trained nurses, but we did a whole retraining package. Um, but yeah, that sort of, you know, um, bending out of shape and service provision naturally has an impact. So like everywhere else in the health service, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of my guys are very, very weary. Uh, they've been working long, long and hard, extended hours, often in unfamiliar environments um, for quite an extended period now. We are um, we're leading the uh, Hampshire Isle of Wight mass vaccination centres as well. Uh, as it happens, so we're we're uh, a big player uh, alongside colleagues from primary care and and community pharmacies, delivering the vaccination program. So we've got people uh, again redeployed out working in vaccination centres, doing long shifts seven days a week, trying to get the protection into people, which is brilliant work, and and they're doing a fantastic job of it uh, and thriving in it. But at, at the end of all this, it's like a you know. 12 months and counting long op tour to use a, the military vernacular so people are, are, are getting pretty weary so there's going to be a you know we need to think of a, a way to plan our way through that because once this is all over of course um you know people want to get back to um the public will naturally want to you know get their get their um get themselves sorted out with their healthcare needs so you know it's not like we can stop uh, and take a couple of weeks leave um you know we've got to carry on delivering um doing doing what we're doing so that will take some some nuanced planning um and there'll be like like elsewhere across health uh, doubtless in in some of our sort of elective services you know waiting lists have been growing because um you know while covid has you know, pretty dominated the agenda for um the last 12 months or so you know people have still got the same afflictions um and the same things that, that that of need that need an intervention. So at the moment, you know, like everywhere else in across the country, you know, our, our waiting lists are growing, and that's going to take some time to to clear to pre-COVID levels. Do you think there's um you've used a few sort of military phrases in terms of deployment? Do you think there's learning for the NHS from the military world here in terms of the well-being and and dealing with some of the challenges that these this extended deployment, as you put it, has caused for staff? I'm talking about particularly. Yeah, I think there's. I think there was. I think there is some, and I think there were some sort of similarities. Um, and, and you know, I think you know, the, in, within health, you know, the blue light services, the ambulance services are quite, you know, accustomed to working at high intensity, uh, in a high trauma sort of environment. Um, but I think there are there are lessons in terms of um, of helping people sort of reset, reflect um, on on their experiences. Um, and so we've designed within the trust. Um, you know, quite a comprehensive staff well-being offer um, to try and help people, you know, reconcile to what, you know, what the ex their experience have been. Um, but, you know, we're still we're obviously thankfully at the moment on the sort of downward slope of the second wave pretty much and things are starting to starting to ease up. But, you know, activity is still quite high. Um, and where we sit in the health service on that rehabilitation um, element, you know, with people, particularly the long COVID is becoming an increasingly well-recognised um, condition, you know, our guys are still are still busy, so it's going to be with us for a while. But um, but yeah, all all of those sort of interventions, I think there are there is some learning, and you know, we've been lucky enough to um, be able to be able to lean into that and design some of our some of our um, staff well being and reflective 
practice into uh, to reflect that in, in our own well-being offer. I think it's interesting when you sort of obviously in the news you see we see lots of numbers and statistics about COVID and it's sometimes you don't always appreciate I don't always appreciate all the people behind all of that because you don't get to see it obviously I don't get to see it on a day-to-day basis and I think uh, you know the NHS deserves all the plaudits it's been getting as far as I'm concerned and to, to you and your team thank you. Well it's very kind of you to to say that you know I think the I think the whole NHS has um, has really you know stood up um, and and been there when the country needed it at at most. Um, so yeah, I, I mean I'm, we're incredibly proud of uh, of what our teams have have achieved and um, been incredibly incredibly responsive, uh, dynamic and and flexible um, in changing you know changing really rapidly, implementing some of that new remote consultation type tech that we were talking about earlier on. But you know changing entire roles, you know doing you know incredible hours. Um, because pe- these, you know, our people are fantastically committed to delivering the best possible care for the population, um, and uh, and they've been absolutely fantastic in, in that. I couldn't agree more. So, one final question: what what can we do to encourage those in need to come forward? I'm particularly talking about the military side of of, of your work here. What do we need to do differently or more of? What do you think would make a difference? Is there anything we can do? I think it's a. I think it's a constant. Um, it's a bit like painting the fourth road bridge. This, you know, it's um, you've got to keep, um, keep at it, um, keep keep going, but communicating all the time and for to encourage people to come forward and use the services. And in the mental health sphere, you know, it, again, it's becoming quite a well-known saying. And it's okay not to be okay, and and everybody everybody gets that and understands that. I think there's some incredible, um, you know, incredible examples of um, of people, you know now going very publicly and talking about you know some of their mental health struggles that uh, that they've had um very prominent people in public life are talking very openly about that and i think that's all you know it's all good because you know it's um it's something which can and can and does affect people from all walks of life um no matter what uh, at all levels you know it doesn't you know it does no respect to of um of background or gender or race or level of, or rank or, or any of those sort of things it's um you know it's a phenomenally human condition, mm. uh, so it, I think it's okay to not be okay, and you know the help is there, and there are um, across areas like the Portsmouth Military Mental Health Alliance, certainly here within Southern, you know there are there are professional people that are uh, are dedicated to helping people through, and uh, uh, so that's a that's a good thing, and uh, you know and they uh, they're there to help. Yeah, I quite agree. I think um, you've mentioned a lot of support organisations, certainly locally, some of which I'm aware of, some I'm not. Um, if you could, if you could send us through all that information, we can include that in the description of the podcast. So if any of our listeners want to find out a bit more about those organisations and services, if that could be included, we can do that after we've recorded, obviously. But just please do send it through, David. That would be very much appreciated. Yeah, it'd be our pleasure. And finally, I would just like to thank you for coming on the podcast. You've you've enlightened me into my initial question. What does Solent NHS Trust do? I now know more than I did. So thank you very much for that. And I hope our, our listeners will benefit from that insight as well. Great pleasure. No, thanks very much, Steve. Wow, there was a lot in there, Mike. He does have an awful lot of responsibility, doesn't he? So what did you make of it? Well, it, it seems like he's almost had two separate careers. Um, 
each of you know great significance, joined at the hip by the public service link between the two of them, but 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 in other respects, you know, completely different. Yeah, I thought it was fantastic. He certainly likes a challenge, doesn't he? So so for the benefit of your uh, listeners, um, he said he was twenty eight years in the Royal Navy as a logistics officer, uh, which is known colloquially as a um, a pusser. Um, but actually, it does so much more than that because he's responsible not just for counting peas and blankets, but uh, running a whole range of support operations without which the Navy and the Marines wouldn't function. So um, when we, we worked together, he was the executive assistant, um, uh, effectively the secretary of um, the, uh, one of the admirals that worked in the Ministry of Defence, a very you know influential and, and powerful position. So um, he's done a lot. In his time, including wearing what uh, one of your previous um, interviewers, uh, Bill Oliphant, describes as army pajamas when he was deputy commander of 101 Brigade in Afghanistan. And now there's some diversity for you. There is. I'm still sort of struggling with the idea of him counting peas. Yeah, that's what we call the the, the, the logistics branch um, pea counters or blanket counters. Anyway, actually, really interesting how his career. Uh, when he left the navy, took a um, you know a, a new turn in joining this NHS trust, the Solent NHS Trust, um, and I think I heard you say that you were enlightened uh, by his talk. Is that is that correct? That's a good word, isn't it? Enlightened. Yes, I was because even though we spend a lot of time helping and supporting people, and of course you have your own personal healthcare to look after, I do find the NHS to be an incredibly complicated world, incredibly complicated. Yeah, very. I mean, he he, he, he described, you know, some of the responsibilities of the Solent NHS Trust, you know, and, and, and it wasn't just about delivering healthcare in the community. You know, he talked, he talked about physio and meds and therapy and palliative care and chemo to children and mental health and spelling and speech and language and and specialist dental just you know amongst a few i mean it's in a huge range of activities that he's you know he, he he and his team are in charge of and they cover quite a large area the whole of southern hampshire including the two municipalities of southampton and portsmouth that that is as you said at the start um, a, a lot of responsibility. It's a heck of a lot of responsibility. But we do need these services, don't we? We absolutely do. Uh, and, you know, and, and uh, I, he was good to link, you know, his 28 years in the Navy to what he's now doing as chief exec of this trust uh, through what he called public service, you know, and, he's, and he called it rather unfashionable to, you know, be in public service. And I don't think I agree with that. It, I actually think public service is something that we should be proud of. Uh, and, you know, the fact that you join, you know, an organisation like the NHS or the armed forces or the police and all the blue light services, not not because you want to make money, but because you want to make a difference. And I think, you know, I like the way he linked the two through that um, altruism is what he used the word. Which is also a very good word. Yes, I quite I quite agree. And I think particularly in, you know, given the last year we've had and public service, well, I think a lot of us wouldn't be here without some rather excellent public service. Yeah, I think he, I think right at the end, he said, the, I think it was a lovely statement, he said the NHS stood up and were there for the country when it needed it most. And I think, you know, I think we all would agree with that. Um, 
Um, he then, uh, I liked um, the way that he then started talking about, uh, well, you asked him the question, mental health services, and particularly what he's doing in the Portsmouth region as part of a bigger jigsaw, which is called Op Courage. Um, and I've heard the term before, but I hadn't really sort of investigated it fully until um, that interview. So really interesting to know what's going on. I know it's been only launched very recently, but um, really, really good that the MOT and the services are getting to grips with this. And I think, you know, you and the company of makers have been part of this for uh, many years now. Um, and And suddenly now, you know, it's starting to become you know, much more mainstream. Uh, the, the phrase he used was, do you know, it's okay not to be okay. And I thought that was another good statement. Yeah, I agree. And there's lots of lots of organizations that are locally, uh, sorry, lots of local organizations that are contributing. As he mentioned, they're all call signs, veterans outreach support, Shawleaf Hasler over in Gosport. So it's that kind of collaboration between statutory charity that's, uh, I think is making a difference, particularly in Portsmouth. I think it's changed beyond recognition in the last few years in Portsmouth. Yeah, he talks about um, the Portsmouth Military Mental Health Alliance, uh, which he's part of, and he describes it as a forum for stakeholders that they can provide some coherence and joined up thinking in the space. And I think, you know, that's clearly, there are lots of, this has always been one of the issues, you know, with things like healthcare is there are lots of good people doing lots of good things, but not necessarily in a joined up way. And when you have these um, initiatives, which start to bring people together so they can collaborate, the sum of the parts is greater than the sum of the whole, because actually getting people working together, sharing best practice, not duplicating effort, has got to be the right way ahead. So I think um, I really admire what he's doing. And I suspect what he's doing here in Portsmouth um, is actually pioneering for the whole Op Courage project. I'm sure it is. And as one of those really small organizations, it's just good to hear what other people are doing because there's no, you wouldn't ordinarily bump into an organization that's delivering, certainly outside of the Portsmouth area. And I think that's really important to know what other services, who's involved and how you can collaborate, what the opportunities are. Yeah, exactly that. Um, he used a couple of acronyms, which I didn't understand. So I immediately Googled them. Um, and he used the word TIL and CTS. And I'm, I'm guessing everybody else knows what they are apart from me. But just in case one person doesn't, TIL stands for Transition, Intervention and Liaison. Um, and it's a service that's provided as part of CTS, which stands for Complex Treatment Service. So you're, you know, you're, you don't know what you don't know. There's a couple of things that I've been enlightened on um, since that. But that's important, isn't it? Because you hear all this jargon. Um, people may not know what it means. And, you know, it's important that we explain it so that people who may be in need can access those services because they actually know what's available. Uh, I mean, all organisations are guilty of jargon. Um, the armed forces, no exception here. We're, we're always going on about TLAs which stands for three-letter acronyms, by the way. Um, but, um, you know, uh, I think the problem with jargon is that if you're in the inner circle, you understand it, and if you're anywhere out of that, you probably don't. And good communication is trying to keep it jargon-free so that everybody understands and everybody can contribute. So, um, yes, you're absolutely right. It's very off-putting as well, isn't it? Very, Especially for people that are not, as you say, in that circle. Yeah, it can be very OTT. Oh, very good. No, I don't think so. Um, you are you um you asked him about you know, um how it will you know was going through COVID and remote versus face to face and things like that, and I thought it was quite instructive that he thought that 
you know, working remotely brought its own challenges, obviously, and there are some things you can't do as well as you could do. But he also said that actually that means people had to innovate. And you and I have seen a lot of that um, through some of the people that you've interviewed for these series in that actually you just have to adapt to the circumstances and those that do uh, will generally succeed. You know, it's it, it's just another challenge. I think Pete Reed in his podcast talked about it. You can't control what's happened, but you can control what you do about it. Um, and, it and, you know, and, uh, and I think that's a fantastic attitude. Yeah, control the controllables, I think it is. I don't know if there's an acronym for that, though. I'll think of one. Okay, I look forward to it. By the end of the episode, please. CTC. Um, staff... He talked about um, the weariness of the staff, and I don't think he was just referring to his staff now. I think his staff were a microcosm of, you know, the key workers that have been working nonstop since, you know, March last year when when the pandemic was declared and lockdown started for the first time. And, you know, here we are sort of 12 months plus later, and we're still, you know, albeit that, you know, the curves are going in the right direction for the moment. A lot of people have had have been non-stop in that period. Um, and they can't simply stop when 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 it is over because there's a whole raft of stuff to catch up on um, that, that is now on a big waiting list. Um, so you've got to feel for, the, for these people that have been just going at it for the last 12 months without a break. Yeah, obviously we're dealing, we, we dealt with the immediate problem, I guess. We have a you know vaccine program rolling out, which is all great news. But as you say, this is going to create some big waiting lists. We've got the challenges of long COVID. I was reading some fairly frightening numbers that people might be affected by that. So this is, um, if it all ended today, the legacy is going to be dealt with over several years, I think. Yeah. Um, he, I didn't, didn't know this, but he said that he, that, that he and his team were responsible for uh, running the vaccination program in Hampshire and the Isle of Wight, which is really, I didn't know that. Um, and they're doing of course, an extraordinarily good job, um, and and I received my my job about eight weeks ago now. But and it was a pretty um, fantastic, slick um, event for me, and I think for everybody else that I've spoken to as well. So um, so they they are doing a magnificent job, and and I think they're ahead of the slightly ahead of the national trend in terms of which age group they're going through. So it, um, doing a really fantastic job. So I didn't know that. that was, um, that's brilliant. The advantages of a national health service, it would seem. <laughs> yeah, well, we've spoken about the NHS a lot of times over this, and uh, you know, and at the moment, you know, they're they're doing us proud. Um, but, but we need to worry, of course, about what happens next. So, you know, when when we're through this pandemic and we've got a big backlog of stuff to do, I still do. You remember an interview we did all. Oh, three or four years ago on HMS Warrior when we talked about um, too much money spent on curative care and not on preventative care. And I still believe that we need to put more money into preventing disease and illness um, than we do at the moment. And, and then we can spend less on actually mending it or repairing it when people get broken. Yes, I, well, I think we'd all agree. It's just a case of having the vision to do that. I think we even touched on that um, idea with in one of Adrian's interviews about how do we plan further than just the election cycle. Um, but obviously, we wouldn't have a national health service if that if we weren't planning beyond an election cycle. So I think you know the the organisations there. I, it always comes down to money and where you choose to spend it, doesn't it? Yeah, 
Indeed. One last thing, Steve. Um, um, I think David, um, who's a top bloke, um, is a really good example of the sort of transferable skills that uh, military people have of all shapes and sizes, ranks and rates, uh, when they transfer to Sibby Street. And, and you know, he's you know, stepped into that role, um, and he's not been trained to run an NHS trust before, but he's been trained in a number of other things, including people management and leadership and things like that. And he's clearly doing a really good job. So, and, and, it, and I think there's example and example again of the transfer of skills the military have. And actually, if you are military um, and listening to this and worrying about where you're going to go in Civvy Street, uh, I, you know, please don't underestimate the transferable skills you've got. You, you may think you have nothing to offer, and I can promise you that is not true. You have a huge amount to offer. Uh, your attitude and can, you know, can-do attitude and, and, and the way in which you approach life is one, is one thing that is will sorely need it and will, will stand you by when you apply it in uh, another job in, in a, a civilian um, um, piece of clothing. So uh, transferable skills, you've got them in check loads. I would agree. I think the only challenge is sometimes translating. We're talking back back to acronyms again. You know, what what does all that mean in the civilian, sorry, the military jargon? And what does that look like in the civilian context? I think that can be a challenge. But I think in terms of skills and attitude, you're absolutely right. Yeah. So have faith in yourself, people. Have faith. Thank you very much, Mike. Thanks for listening. The Royal Navy and Royal Marines charity exists to support sailors, marines and their families for life. If you or someone you know could do with some support, give them a call on 023 93 87 1568 or drop them an email on support at rnrmc.org.uk. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more, please subscribe.